Good afternoon all from Tyler, Texas on a beautiful Easter Sunday. Happy Easter to you and to all your family. Hope that you have had a good day. Hope you are able to uh, worship the Lord today, either online or in person with the church family somewhere that you're connected with. We had a great group at our church this morning, West Irwin Church of Christ here in Tyler, and we had a, a large crowd that was gathered. We have had great crowds each week over the last few weeks, three or four weeks. We have increased in number and, and basically had the most we've had since the pandemic began uh, 15 months ago. And we shut down a little over a year ago for five or six weeks. And, um, and so these last few weeks have been a real blessing. We've been able to see some folks that we haven't seen in a long time and others that are coming uh, as well, uh, little by little every week. And that's a great uh, great thing. I see that we've got some uh, wonderful names popping up on this video as we're watching it live uh, and I'm sharing it live on Sunday afternoon of Easter Sunday. Uh, my dear sister Tia Clark, great to see you Tia. You're, uh, uh, our, our brother Brian, he did so good uh, a week ago on the closing prayer. He is such a fine, fine young man and I appreciate him dearly. Uh, Eric and Cindy Mosley turning in to say hello, as well as Larry and Lynn Murphy. I know we'll have some others that will come along as well. So again, happy Easter to you. Hope you've had a good day, an enjoyable day, a day that reminds you uh, of the hope of the resurrection. What a blessing to be able to celebrate uh, the empty tomb. And I love the fact that so many around the world uh, pause during this time of the year to remember uh, the most important single event in human history and that is the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ thankfully that story did not end on the hill of golgotha uh, latin calvary but rather that hill uh, was not the end of the story and for jesus neither was the tomb and with great power romans 1 chapter says uh, jesus was declared to be the son of god with power through the resurrection of the dead and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as you know the great resurrection chapter reminds us that it's not just the resurrection of Christ that is celebrated but it's ours as well as we see that hope confirmed and uh, the promise assured through the resurrection of Jesus our Lord nice to see my dear sister Barbara uh, tuning in as well it was great to see you this morning and to be able to worship with you and with our wonderful West Irwin uh, family uh, as we continue on through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we find ourselves in chapter 12 today. We have perhaps about a month or so left of lessons in Mark. I'll probably spend a couple of weeks on one or two chapters that we have remaining. But today in Mark chapter 12, it's a, it's a chapter about tests. And uh, many of our students have been going online. Others are actually able to be live in classes these days. Um, a lot are doing a little bit of both. The college students and others that I've talked to are certainly uh, saying that they are doing plenty of both. And so uh, I, this is the time of year uh, as we get into April and close to May that uh, you start thinking about tests and you thought, start thinking about those important tests. Not that there are any that aren't important, but as you start thinking about those end of year tests and end of term tests that really count for a whole, whole lot. Well, Mark chapter 12 is a chapter about tests, but you can relax. <laughs> I'm not going to test you on any of it. Rather, it's Jesus that is the one who is predominantly being tested. And it all begins uh, with a parable that he tells in Mark chapter 12. 
in the first 11 verses and then Mark's little commentary, one verse to introduce the rest uh, of the chapter. And these tests come at him out of uh, not from sincere hearts for the most part, but actually uh, just from a desire to try to trap him in his own words. And uh, we see a lot of that going on today as well. But for Jesus, it ultimately cost him his life when they were able to find someone in his inner circle that they could pay off uh, to uh, give them an inside look at a place where Jesus would be away from the crowd. And they could arrest him and then charge him with something that he said, except they don't find anything until Jesus actually acknowledges himself and makes the good confession, as Paul writes, himself. Uh, as he stands before the Jewish leaders and then later before the governor, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and acknowledges that, yes, he is a king. Uh, yes, he is the Messiah. And so let's read this parable, first of all, that kind of kicks this chapter off. It's a little bit of a longer chapter, so we'll do a lot of reading, but that's okay. Uh, one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the tenants, and there's no question about uh, the application for this one because it's clearly clearly an indication of, of how the Jewish leaders were responding to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus himself. Mark 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Verse 6. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quoting from Psalm 18 there at the end. But we read this parable and we see it in the other uh, gospel accounts and it's uh, clearly a message that illustrates to us uh, what God has done through his son. You know, it kind of reminds me of a parable that we looked at in our Wednesday night Bible study at our uh, West Irwin Church of Christ this past Wednesday night or two uh, from Isaiah, actually, Isaiah chapter five in the parable of the vineyard. And in that parable, Isaiah talks to the people of his day about God's care for them and how, how Israel was his vineyard and he had taken care of it. And yet every time he went and took a look, there, were no, there was no good fruit uh, on the vines. And so he took away his protection of his vineyard and, uh, and it was ultimately destroyed. Well, here's the, the parable of Jesus, of course, kind of related to that with a little bit different emphasis where God, of course, is the is the the gardener. He is the one who has uh, planted a vineyard and and now he has left uh, the religious leaders to uh, be in charge of it. And uh, and he has sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, if you will, uh, to get them to do what's right. 
And yet they would not. They would not. And finally, he sent his own son. And the son they killed. Uh, and yet um, the son, as we know from the wonderful story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the son was raised to life. And, um, and those who treated him poorly, those who rejected him, uh, will be treated uh, in the same way. They will be judged harshly by the one who has every right to judge them that way, uh, the holy God himself. And so Jesus tells this parable to remind us, look, we're, we're, we're faced with a decision whether to accept uh, the one who has sent his own son and to hear his message and to turn and follow his will or not. And that's, uh, I believe, the unmistakable uh, application of this parable to be able to remind us uh, to be obedient and to turn to God and to hear the words of warning uh, from his prophets, from his holy word and to be willing to worship that one that the world worships today uh, on Easter Sunday, but to worship him every single day. Uh, what a great, great story. We're reminded of that great passage in John 15 that talks one of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the vine and you are the branches. And there we see the son of God being that life-giving vine uh, and ourselves being branches to produce fruit. Uh, such as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those wonderful, wonderful fruit of the Spirit and beyond. And, and so that there can be other branches formed uh, to be connected to that vineyard, uh, to that vine. Uh, well, here we remember that Jesus is telling us, well, there's a lot of things that are going on that aren't right. And God one day will make them right. And then we read these words. In Mark chapter 12, verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, or scribes, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So they get the message, <laughs> but instead of repenting and turning to the Lord in humility and obedience, they double down, as we say these days, and they seek to kill him and they look for a good opportunity and it's not until the garden of gethsemane uh, led there by the betrayer judas iscariot one of jesus closest followers uh, that they find that opportunity but in the meantime they're going to throw questions at him to see if they can find a way to to test him and to uh, see him trip himself up with his own words but every time jesus has the answer and the first one is on paying taxes <laughs> and so typically at this time of year we're in the midst of all of that and uh, even during a pandemic year and and now this year in 2021 uh, still it's tax season for many and um, and so a very timely parable from Jesus beginning in verse 13 of Mark 12 later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians the Herodians are those who are sympathetic to Herod so they're kind of tied in with the governing authorities. The Pharisees are just the opposite. It's an unlikely partners here. Pharisees are sticklers of the law and they, they tend to question as liberals, those who are connected with uh, the government, either the, the Herodian dynasty, King Herod and his followers who had some connection to the Jews or even to the Romans themselves. And there were lots of tax collectors uh, that were connected in those ways also. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. No question what their motive is. 
They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And I'm sure I can see Jesus listening to these first introductory words and smiling and saying, Yeah, yeah, you think that uh, you're buttering me up, but it's not going to happen. And so then they get to his question, as you know, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy in one of the great moments that's very well known. He has the perfect response. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, basically a coin that was about the daily uh, wage uh, for a typical worker. Let me look at the denarius. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose description? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I've heard this story told in an application to American uh, money and exchanges, and that is, uh, bring me a dollar bill. Bring me a dollar bill. Well, whose picture is on the dollar bill? Washington. Well, then give to Washington what is Washington's and to God what is God's. Okay, well, that's maybe a little bit of a stretch. It's kind of similar, uh, similar. Um, but the question becomes, is it right to pay the taxes or not? This next Sunday... Uh, one week from today in our sermon time on Sunday morning at West Irwin Church of Christ, I'll be sharing in our Roman study from Romans chapter 13, that very difficult passage and challenging passage, and con uh, considering others as well that speak about how the church and the state are related, how the Christians should relate to secular civil authorities. So that'll be a very challenging lesson indeed, and this passage will be mentioned, uh, this interaction between Jesus and uh, a sect or two of the Jews uh, on whether we should pay the taxes or not. And Jesus, of course, tells them, look, you give to everybody. Paul will say this. Peter will say this. Give to everyone what is due them. If taxes, then pay your taxes. Uh, but give to God what is due God's. And don't give that to anyone else. Similar statement from what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, another passage that speaks about money. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will come together for you. Next question, next test in Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, another sect of the Jews, who unlike the Pharisees, as Mark describes, uh, the Sadducees did not accept that there would be a resurrection. Um, and that's an interesting dilemma. Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is the, what is called the leveret marriage practice that uh, we find in uh, uh, the Old Testament. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without having any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, if you've heard me talk about this passage before, you know what I'm about to say, and that is this. This woman was bad luck. I mean, if I'm brother number six or seven, I am so out of there. I'm not going to stick around. And, uh, well, as you know, this is a made-up situation. And the Sadducees, even as they offer the question at the end, in the resurrection, and you can almost hear them smirking if there is a resurrection, well, whose wife will she be? Well, Jesus gives them 
the perfect response. But first, uh, he has a word of rebuke for them, which I think is, is very important for us to notice. Verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Well, that's an important statement because these people, these uh, Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the others, they knew the word of God, or at least they knew about it. They knew the BCVs. They knew the book, chapter, and verse. They knew where to find everything, but they didn't know the word of God. And we're reminded of Hosea saying, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know me, God said, but not know me and, and know the words they know the words, but they don't follow it. They don't accept it into their hearts and apply it into their lives. Are you not in error? Jesus replied, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus, first of all, answers their question and, and answers their test uh, because they're asking about the resurrection. And he says, look, she's not going to be anybody's wife. In the resurrection, and there definitely is one, people are not married or given in marriage. We're not going to see that. That's an earthly thing. But as Jesus says, they'll be like the angels. Everyone will be gathered around the throne of God uh, to praise him and offer our praise and love to him for eternity. Um, there's not going to be these kind of earthly relationships like we have. But then he goes on because there, he answers their question. He could stop there, but he wants to put in a word about the resurrection. And he says, as far as the resurrection is concerned, of course, there's a resurrection. God is the God of the living, not the dead. And yet he calls himself, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus is basically saying, yes, there's a resurrection because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're still very much alive. Uh, even though they have died, they will one day be raised from the dead and they will live for eternity. And Jesus himself recalls, even though he doesn't say it specifically, uh, the, the statement of God when Moses asks him at the burning bush in the first few chapters of Exodus, when God tells him, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses says, uh, I don't even know your name. And God says, I am existence. I am that I am. The, the one thing about God that can't be denied, one of the many, and that is that our God, he is alive, as that song we sing uh, often uh, is titled, Our God, He is Alive. And uh, we celebrate that today in a great way, but we celebrate it every day and every Sunday, especially remembering that empty tomb. Um, okay, so we keep going in Mark 12, verse 28. And Mark has a little bit different twist on this next story, as does Luke in Luke 10. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? So this man in Mark's gospel, uh, this incident seems to be in, about a man who actually has a bit more of a sincere and genuine motive than some of the others. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And you know what Jesus says. So familiar. Mark 12, verse 29. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The sacred Shema, the, the text taken from Deuteronomy uh, chapter six. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The second commandment being taken from Leviticus 19 verse 18. And we talked about that verse this morning in our sermon time because we were in Romans 12 talking about that passage at the end of the chapter that says overcome evil with good, not with more evil. Uh, don't pay anyone back evil for evil, uh, but rather be willing to forgive and to turn it over to God. Well, that passage in Leviticus 19, 18, that is the source of what Jesus calls the second great commandment, uh, un unbelievably tied to the first, they can't be separated, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, 18, in the context, it says, do not bear a grudge against any of my people, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. In its original statement, and I realize there's lots of applications here, but in its original statement, the opposite of fulfilling the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is to refuse to forgive and to hold a grudge. I think that's a very, very powerful, powerful statement. But I, I love how Jesus ties both of these together, much like John would do later in 1 John chapters 3 and 4. He's talking about how we are called to love one another. He says, don't tell me that you love God if you don't love your brother or your sister, because how can you love a God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother or sister whom you have seen? And it's just as what Jesus does here. The man could have said, wait, wait, I just wanted to know the first commandment. I, I don't, I just wanted to know who won. I just wanted to know who was number one to love God. Okay, I got it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The second is like it. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is in throughout the words of scripture, from the Old Testament law to the prophets to uh, the letters and revelation to these words of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, you uh, are guilty of, of uh, disobeying the first commandment to love God if you do not love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and so the man has an interesting reaction of faith in verse 32 in the midst of this doubt question this this question of impure this uh questioning of jesus by people with impure motives there is this man and there's one other person that shines during this chapter verse 32 well said teacher the man replied you're right in saying that god is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, this scribe, this teacher of the law seemed to be on a journey, much like Nicodemus's journey that we see throughout in three different places in the Gospel of John, in John 3 and at the end of chapter 7, and then finally helping Joseph of Arimathea, his fellow member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, take the body of Christ down from the cross. This man seems to be on a spiritual journey as well. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions, at least for a while, we think. But Jesus isn't done with him. You see, Jesus is not about winning arguments. He's actually more about winning souls. And there are people there that need to be confronted with whether or not they accept Jesus as the Messiah. And that's the same thing today. And Jesus will force that hand. He will move us 
to make a decision to either follow him or reject him, to either obey him or disobey him, to either make him Lord of our lives or to turn around and walk away like the rich young ruler did. And so Jesus finally comes back at them. In Mark 12, verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, who do the teachers of the law say that, uh, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David, his ancestor, the Messiah, the descendant. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Quoting from Psalm 10. And so you have David, the ancestor, calling the Messiah, his descendant, Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. And that's the application that Jesus makes in asking the question. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And so he turned the tables on them. They wanted a gotcha moment. He gave them one, but it was a different victim than what they had anticipated. They had anticipated Jesus being the victim. Um, but Jesus, again, turns the tables on them, asks them a question that they can't answer. Uh, who, why is it that David would call uh, the Messiah Lord? When the Messiah is the descendant, then the, the greater one should be the ancestor, just as Father Abraham was. But with Jesus, that's not the case. And David understood that, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Another aspect of this statement is that we hear and see that Jesus believed that the Old Testament, as we call it, was the inspired word of God. He says, David, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see several times in the New Testament where New Testament characters or New Testament writers an example, Jesus being what he says here, uh, acknowledging um, that the word of God in Old Testament times was exactly that. It was the word of God. And the crowd loves it. <laughs> I mean, they love it. They love seeing these men that they know have questionable motives at best put back on their toes and given a little bit of a taste of their own medicine. Um, and Jesus does that. He does that another time when he asked them about John's baptism, whether it came from heaven or whether it was just something that John himself made up. And he does this again to push them to a decision because they would not accept John's baptism. They would not accept John's teaching. They were too proud. Um, and so Jesus forces their hand and they can't say that they didn't accept it because it wasn't true because all of the people went to John and recognized him as a prophet and were baptized by him or baptized by Jesus and his disciples or both. And um, and so Jesus puts it back on them and they say, we can't tell you because they know that either way they answer, the people are going to uh, rebel against their, their answers and their authority. And so they just get quiet. And so Jesus, the whole motivation for that story is that they had asked Jesus about the authority behind his works. And so Jesus refuses to answer them uh, in the same way that they did. Uh, here, Jesus puts the question back to them and has them on their back feet and, um, and asks them, uh, well, you know, who's greater? Uh, the son of David or David himself? And of course, we know uh, the son of David. Well, there was one person in this chapter um, who actually passed the test that they were given. And Mark tells us that story uh, in Mark 12, beginning at verse 38. 
As he taught, Jesus said, watch for the teachers of the law, the scribes. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' homes and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Other places has Jesus saying, look, the religious leaders uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and other places, Jesus tells his followers, look, listen to what they say. Uh, but don't look at what they do because they are not practicing what they preach. They're doing it all for show. Uh, but the word of God is still true. And so listen to it and heed it. And then these words in verse 41 that are kind of the opposite of the spirit of those religious leaders. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Well, if there's one person in this chapter who passes the test, it's this poor widow. She has very little to give, but she brings it all and she gives it to the work of God. As Jesus says, she put in everything, all she had to live on. It's what the rich young ruler that we read about was unwilling to do when Jesus challenged him to do the same thing and to come and follow him. He was in a much better position to do it, and yet he did not. This woman voluntarily gave everything out of a sense of faith, out of a heart of gratitude, knowing that her Lord that she trusted would see her through and would take care of her. Fulfilling what Jesus says in that Sermon on the Mount, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the things that you need. Not maybe everything that you want, but everything that you need will be given to you as well. Uh, well, as we look back on these religious leaders, we understand that sometimes we put Jesus to the test as well because we're trying to find a way to rationalize, to talk out of a situation where he calls us to be and to do and to say things that we find difficult um, and that may not be uh, in our own selfish interest, but he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him in order to be his disciple. And that's exactly what this poor widow was willing to do. She gave God everything she had. Unlike these religious leaders, she stands in stark contrast to them. And so we take a look at this man who asks about the greatest commandment and on the road, on a journey uh, to be able to follow and to obey those great commandments. And we see this wonderful widow putting in everything that she had, giving all of her heart uh, to the Lord who loved her, who created her, and in whom she trusted. I pray that on this Easter Sunday, as we think of that wonderful empty tomb, that we remember that the one who was raised out of that tomb demands nothing less of us today. He calls on us to give him everything that we are, everything that we have and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that he will take care of all of our needs.
May God bless you this Easter Sunday.